0: at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Hello
1: Erickson Covenant Church. My name is Shannon Johnson Friesen and I am the plaster and church planter of Stonehouse Covenant Church in Steinbeck, Manitoba, so coming to you from the prairies. We are about 40 people I think. We'll be, ga- we'll be three years old in September and have, like you, spent the majority of the last 16 months gathering for worship online. COVID realities actually became the ground in which we became visible in our community for the first time. And though we can't really see how God is um, working through us, we trust that he is working in this through us in this season. Like many churches, we're very curious to see what we look like when we are able to begin gathering in person again. Many of us who call Stonehouse home are looking forward to sitting around the table together and reestablishing connections and worshiping in the same room. In fact, this is what I invite you to imagine, sitting around the table with your brothers and sisters as we enter our text today today. It's what we're made for. I have um, a small call to worship uh, that just sort of sets the table for us engaging this text. we will be looking at Genesis 16. If you have your Bibles, uh, I will be referring and reading right from the text if you want to join in in that way. So here is our small call to worship. We will proclaim the name of Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, he is just and upright. Let's pray together. God, we um, come before you today uh, in humility and with attentive hearts. God, would you teach us through your word? May we receive the gifts that you offer us through your your word, through this text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On my day off a couple of months ago, I went hiking in a nearby provincial park with my friend, Steph. And it was, we had perfect temperatures, there was no wind, it was pretty cool, it was still spring. And we're hiking along, and we come upon this stand of tall trees. And we just had to pause and soak it in. Standing among tall trees makes me feel small, I don't know about you. They provide some room to breathe, and... This gives perspective on my place and my role in this world. It reminds me that I get this amount of time here, just like everyone else. Standing among tall trees humbles me. This was my experience as I stood with the story of Hagar, and that's what we will be looking at today. I feel like I've been standing among tall trees, Eyes wide open to the story itself and to the stories of people who have claimed it as their own, because it's their story too, and has given them hope. Our fellow humans, those who are Black, Indigenous people of color, and others who are victims of human trafficking and exploitation, have lived this story in a way I haven't. So I've spent, um, I spent my week as I was preparing this sermon, listening and learning. I learned, for instance, to differentiate between ethnicity and race. Ethnicity refers to common cultural traits that distinguish one group of people from another. Race, on the other hand, refers to differences between groups of people and then assigns special worth and status to some groups and lower worth and status to others. Race is a social construct. Ethnicity is not. I still have a lot to learn, and I invite you to come on this journey with me today in the posture of a learner. Much of what I preach here today comes from the wisdom and insight of others. This sermon is part of a series called Room at the Table. The week previous to this one, Stonehouse and I looked at two of Jesus' parables, one about a great banquet and one about two sons. And what we saw was that everyone is welcome at God's table, in God's kingdom. You certainly don't have to have it all together or all figured out. You don't have to clean yourself up. You can just come as you are. The Gospels testify that Jesus showed the same things by the way that he lived and by what he taught. He ate with sinners and tax collectors, people on the edges of society. He confronted systems of oppression, reframed what it means to love your neighbor, and taught that humility and trust are what it takes to receive God's kingdom. This table he invites us to is a grace table with good food and good conversation, dignity and respect for all, radical generosity, diversity, inclusion, humility, a lack of hierarchy, serving one another, reconciliation, and of course, special care for those with less and those who are struggling. These parables of Jesus and what we see Jesus doing and teaching in the Gospels beg the question, where else does this radical grace and inclusivity show up in Scripture? Like, does Scripture support this kind of throw-the-doors-wide-open-anyone-can-come invitation into God's kingdom, into his family? What does that say about God? And what does it say about the church? So... In these stories, um, in in this story of Hagar in particular, we are going to look at um, what seems to be showing the same thing. This is uh, exploration. This uh, Room at the Table series, is it's turning out to be that. And I haven't known exactly what we would find, but so far and and hagar's story is one of them where i am i am surprised but in in such a good way and i'm challenged and and hagar's story was that uh for me like i said before uh we'll begin looking at hagar's story in genesis 16 and as i got into her story i realized that it needed two sermons so i'm going to join you again next week and we'll do part two next week Hagar was Sarah's Egyptian slave woman, whom Sarah gave to Abraham to produce an heir with, a child that would receive all of Abraham's land and possessions when he died and carry on the family name. It's a story embedded with cultural realities like patriarchy and slavery and land acquisition. (laughs) These things aren't as distant from us as we'd like to think, are they? That's become um, very apparent even in the last little while. When we read Genesis, we need to remember that its main aim is to preserve the story of Yahweh's election and covenant with Abraham and Israel. That's its main aim. Yahweh promised land and offspring to Abraham and he fulfilled his promise. This is what Genesis shows us. And it follows the building and survival of that line. So Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Jacob's 12 sons who then become the nation of Israel. But it's doing other things too. And that's what our story today is showing us. About 11 years before, um, God had told Abraham to leave his home country and go to the land God would show him. And God promised that he would make Abraham into a great nation and that he would bless him and make his name great so that in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Abraham was 75 years old at the time. And he did what God said. He took his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot, and they went into the land of Canaan to Shechem, where God told him, This is the land I'll give your offspring. But then a famine forced them to go to Egypt for a while, we're told. And that's probably where Sarah acquired Hagar as her slave. This was the culture. The rich had slaves. We're told Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. In time, they left Egypt and went back to Shechem. Time passed, and God continued to hold out the promise of offspring, children, or seed, as the Hebrew text puts it. In Genesis 15, we read that God took Abraham outside and said, Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able so shall your offspring be as numerous as the stars. And Abraham believed God, and God made a covenant with Abraham, sealing the promise. But Sarah did not become pregnant. It had been 10 years since God first promised Abraham descendants, and they were getting old. So she took matters into her own hands. And I'm going to start reading from Genesis 16, verse 1 here. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, Yahweh has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant Hagar. It may be that I shall obtain children by her and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So, after Abram had lived in ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Hagar would produce the firstborn son for Sarah, the one who would inherit the majority of Abraham's estate and carry on the family name. See, this is the way things worked back then. A slave was property. They had to do whatever their masters told them to do. Sarah wanted to produce a son for Abraham. It was shameful in that culture not to be able to produce children. But she couldn't herself. So she gave him Hagar. But um, we don't necessarily know this right away, but Sarah would be considered the baby's mother, not Hagar. Hagar was simply the surrogate. The text said Abraham went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she realized she was pregnant, then her mistress became diminished in her eyes. I'm not just the surrogate. I'm the mother. We mothers can understand that sentiment, I think. It's empowering to carry a life within us. The bond we form with our babies starts in the womb. This was Hagar's child. I think this maybe leveled the hierarchy for Hagar. She began to see Sarah as her equal, or it gave her the courage to not bow to her any longer. So that, that can be an interpretation that we read out of that sense of Hagar, be, um, Sarah becoming diminished in Hagar's eyes. Sarah perceived this, we're told. She said to Abram, "'May the wrong done to me, "'the fact that Yahweh has prevented me "'from having children, be on you. "'I gave my servant to your embrace, "'and when she saw that she had conceived, "'I became diminished in her eyes. "'May Yahweh judge between you and me.' "'But Abraham said to Sarah, "Look, "'Look, your servant is in your power. "'Do to her as you please.' Abraham, who had obviously been intimate with Hagar, treats her as property and hands her back to Sarah. Then Sarah abused and humbled her, we're told, and she fled from her. Hagar liberates herself, possibly for her own survival and the survival of her unborn child, or possibly because something had been awakened in her, her own status as slave, as someone less than, became utterly unacceptable to her. She flees to the wilderness, probably trying to make her way home to Egypt. And then God meets Hagar. The first person in scripture to encounter God face to face is a slave and a woman and someone on the outside of this Abrahamic line that Genesis is attesting to. This story challenges deeply rooted, neatly constructed paradigms, friends. I'm going to start reading in 16, verse 7. The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of Yahweh also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they can't be numbered for the multitude. And the angel of Yahweh said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because Yahweh has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, truly, I have seen the one who has seen me. Therefore, the well was called Bir Lechai Royi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Bir Lachai Royi means, and I'm just looking here, the well of the living one who sees me. The messenger of Yahweh found her by a spring of water, the text says. And he asks her a question and waits for her response. This act in itself gives dignity. Excuse me, I'm just going to take a drink. This act in itself gives dignity. It's so different than how a slave owner talks to a slave. So different than her experiences until this point. What led her to become a slave in the first place? I think we can ask that question. What was her backstory before She became Sarah's slave. Hagar's answer repeats what we already know. Her mistress was abusing her, so she fled. You can imagine the kind of abuse that would cause a young pregnant woman to flee to the extreme vulnerability of the wilderness. That the messenger tells her to return to her abuser goes against our sense of what is good and right, right? It's jarring. It makes us uncomfortable. It's meant to. It makes us think and then read further. We're then told that God promises her three things. He says to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered. We've heard this before. God has said the same thing to Abraham, but we know because of what Genesis is doing that the references to Isaac, Sarah's biological son, and yet here's God's promising Hagar exactly what he promised Abraham. And then he promises her something else. He says that she will have a son and God names him while he's still in her womb. The first person in scripture to be named in utero is a slave woman's son and his name, Ishmael, which means God hears because God was listening to her in the midst of her affliction. And then the third promise that he gives Hagar, he tells her who Ishmael will be and his words describe a free man not a slave. We read these promises and then look back at what God is telling Hagar, um, this return to her mistress kind of command. And it begs us to ask the question, if she did not return, what would be the fate of her and her son? Women and children were extremely vulnerable in the ancient Near East. To survive, she would If she would happen to survive the trek through the wilderness, she would likely have to become someone else's slave. The promises God gave her, offspring beyond number, a son who would be a free man, could only come through returning to Abraham and claiming his rights as Abraham's firstborn son. The promises are what allow us to see a grace arising in the midst of what is truly unjust, an oppressive power structure that puts some humans at the bottom and some at the top, that justifies the exploitation and abuse of fellow humans. Returning was the means by which her son would be free. We're not told how and when she returns to Abraham, were just given her response to what Yahweh had spoken. She names God, the only person in scripture to do so. Ata el Rai, you are the God who sees me. I have seen the one who sees me, she says. And we're told she gives birth to Abraham's firstborn son and that Abraham called his son, whom Hagar had birthed, Ishmael, God hears. And that the well, the spring of water where she had met God, was named Beer Lahai Royi, which means well of the living one who sees me. A sacred name for sacred ground. Friends, these details not only reveal that this story was told and honored in, his, in Israel's history, but that Hagar gained a voice in, It is Hagar who is honored in its retelling and in its finding its ways into the scrolls of Genesis. It reveals that her act of liberating herself from oppression and exploitation was the context in which she met God face to face. And in this, she actually foreshadows Israel leaving Egypt, liberating themselves. I mean, and God was part of that, right? But Israel leaving Egypt, that is foreshadowed in Hagar leaving um, this oppression under Sarai. The text reveals that she chose to return to Abraham and that she told him about her encounter with Yahweh and the promises that he'd given her. Promises that parallel those given to Abraham and that she'd named him. In response, it reveals that Abraham believed her, that he named his son Ishmael, and they named the well as a memorial of her encounter with the living God. Can you imagine being in Abraham's shoes, hearing this slave woman he'd been intimate with testify that the same God who'd called him to leave his home country and go to a new land, who'd promised him land and offspring as numerous as the stars, had met her face to face in her fleeing and promised her the same thing. Talk about a paradigm shift for Abraham. Talk about validating his own experiences of Yahweh. He had believed what God said, but her testimony would have shorted up, bolstering his faith. She had seen God and been seen by God. God had revealed what was coming. And based on those promises, she had returned to her mistress. She believed God too. God had shown up and revealed that he saw her, her vulnerability, her affliction, her suffering, her need, her deepest hopes, not only for survival, but freedom, and he promised that he would deliver them. Friends, God loves justice and righteousness. He proclaims freedom to the captives and the opening of prison doors to those who are bound. From what we read in the next part of the story, Abraham actually assumes that it'll be through Ishmael that his line will continue. God appears to Abraham after Ishmael is born and repeats his promise. Abraham will be the father of a multitude of nations and God will covenant with them as he had done with Abraham and he will give them the land of Canaan. He then introduces a tangible sign of the covenant between them, which is circumcision for every male in Abraham's household in every generation, whether slave or offspring. And then God says that Sarah will have a son, that she herself will become nations. And Abraham laughs. Sarah was far too old to bear a child. And he says, oh, that Ishmael may live before you. But God says, no, Sarah would give birth to a son, and he was to call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant, God said. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation, but... I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall birth to you at this time next year. And when God finished talking with him, he went up from him, the text says, and Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all the males born in his house or bought with his money, and he circumcised them that very day. Abraham was 99 years old, and Ishmael, his son, Was 13 years old when he he was circumcised. That very day, the text says, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. Did you catch that? Ishmael, his son, is repeated three times in just a few sentences. Repetition in the Hebrew text is significant. The author is emphasizing Ishmael's status as Abraham's son. Hagar's son is fully in the family. He's not a slave. He's free. And what Yah- had Yahweh just said about Ishmael's destiny, he too will be blessed just like his father. God will multiply him greatly and make him into a great nation just like his father. It's through Isaac that the particular covenant will be carried forward. But this doesn't mean Ishmael is cast aside. His story will simply take a different path, similar to Esau, Jacob's twin brother. Friends, sometimes we get so focused on the line, on the insiders of this everlasting covenant God makes with Israel, on ourselves somehow as an extension of that, that we forget to look at evidence in scripture that God is for all humans, that God sees and knows and cares for and reveals himself to those on the outside as well as those on the inside. One commentator says this, God has not exclusively committed himself to Abraham and Sarah. God's concern is not confined to the elect line. There is passion and concern for the troubled ones ones who stand outside that line. This is the gospel, friends. God makes room at the table. We see it so clearly in this part of Hagar's story. It reveals a God who operates outside the bounds of human paradigms and human constructs, who sees every person, values every person, offers dignity and grace, and essentially a seat at the table to every person. It reveals a God who is personal, relational, who affirms those that seek to free themselves and others from oppressive power structures, broken systems, who acknowledge that status and the politics of belonging are human social constructs. It reveals that God is beyond the confines of this particular nation's story and at the same time has chosen to reveal himself through it. Where does this leave us as the church? I think it leaves us standing among tall trees. It begs us to pause, to listen, to be humble to not assume an exclusivity in our chosenness, in our right to belong. It challenges us to examine our assumptions, especially those that lead to making decisions about who's in and who's out, that lead to some being at the top and others at the bottom. It calls us to repent. It invites us to read scripture looking for those on the margins to see God's radical grace and inclusivity, that he is the God who sees us, who makes room at the table for all of us. This is what Jesus revealed when he was here. There is continuity between what we see in this story and what we see in Jesus, which is not surprising Jesus shows us the Father, he says. So many people assume that God is angry and vindictive and disappointed in them and exclusive and judging for people for their failures or aloof and too busy with other things and removed from what's going on in the world that he's unseeing. Hagar's story challenges those assumptions too. Hagar's story reveals that God is near, that God is closer than we think. That's what I have for you today. We are going to, um, I'll just enter into a little bit of prayer and then uh, I'll say goodbye until next week. So let's pray. Lord God, May we see your grace and your inclusivity um, shining through in this text, and then may we see it in the interactions that we have uh, with people in our lives, whoever they may be. God, may we see your justice and your righteousness. And may we see the contrasts in the things we observe in the world, um, that we may see the truth of who you are through that even. God, may we become people who live out your ways in the world. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.